The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. We're going back to Genesis 1. This morning we were in Genesis 1. Last Sunday as we kicked off our new preaching teaching series, which we've entitled Working with God or Integrating Faith and Work. And Hill kicked off the series by looking at the design of work. And this morning we're going to think about the dignity of work, the dignity of work. And I want to kind of investigate with you this subject uh, in a twofold manner. Firstly, I want us to see how all good work is equally good, or all respectable work has equal respectability. And I'm going to kind of throw in some Greek mythology. Uh, it should be quite interesting, I think. And then once we've looked at that, we're going to see some far-reaching implications of that reality that all good work is equally good. And so this is where we're going to head in this message. And so if you've got your Bibles open like at uh, Genesis, we're going to jump in at verse 26, and we're going to read down to verse 27, so just a short text this morning. This is God speaking. He says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And so God is speaking within the counsel of his own glory, his own person, the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they say, we're going to do this spectacular thing. It's going to be the peak of creation. And it's this, we're going to make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And by the way, those two terms, image and likeness, are synonyms in the the Old Testament. They're used interchangeably, and they convey a glorious idea and truth. And it's not that God is a big human being, all right? And I've had that conversation with some people None of you, thankfully. But if you can say, is God's a big human being up there? It's kind of ludicrous. Well, that's not what it means. It means that we get the honor and the dignity and the privilege to reflect God's glory and his worth and his beauty and his care in the world. And one of the main ways we do that is what God says next. Listen to what he says. So that, we're going to do this amazing thing, make God, make mankind in our image after a likeness, so that they may rule, that is, work, and then notice this job description, this is huge, over the fish of the, fish of the sea, that's marine biology, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground, that's zoology, and then verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, equal there. He created them. Let's pray. Father, bless this word to us, Lord. Lord, you placed work in paradise. So according to you, paradise is not paradise without work. And so, Lord God, I pray you would help us see the wonder of that, the beauty of that, and the implications of that truth this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, how many of you like a good slogan? Don't be shy. A good slogan. They can be amusing. I was messing around on Google the other day, and I found some slogans, and I want to show these to you. And there's a point in me showing you these slogans, all right? So I'll come to the point in just a minute, but first the slogans. Here's the first one. Can you read that? (laughs) Here's the next one. So true. My kids never use the white one because it's pointless. Here's the next one. (laughs) 
the last one? Or parents with small kids, you know, that's true. Uh, slogans. They can be amusing. They are amusing, like the ones we've just seen. But slogans can also be quite telling, quite penetrating, quite revealing. For example, I was at a, a conference at the end of last year, and it was a, a conference entitled Renewing the Workplace. And it was really geared to help us Christians understand God's idea of work, God's plan for work, and how to integrate faith and work, much like our series this month. And it was really, really helpful. And the keynote speaker at the conference was a guy called Jeffrey Greenman. Jeffrey Greenman. He's the president of a foremost Bible college, uh, Regent College in Vancouver, uh, Canada. And it's a huge college, a wonderful college. And he started his opening talk by sharing with the, those attending the, the conference these slogans, and they all have to do with work. So here's the first one. I'm going to share them with you. I'd rather be at the office. Now, now by the way, each of these slogans communicate something of, uh, about work and, and how people in our culture consider work or view work at times. So here's this, I'd rather be at the office. And of course, this slogan communicates what? That work is an end in itself. Yeah? Life is work. In the office or at work, we kind of find identity, kind of validate our existence. The, the, you know, at home, things can be a little messy and a little random, but, but not at the office, not at work. I get things done. I'm more productive. I can meet targets. And, and, and this idea, I'd rather be at work, can sometimes, I think, fuel workaholic tendencies and habits. And so that's the first one. Here's the second slogan at the opposite end of the continuum. I'd rather be... Fishing. Yeah, that's, that's Nick. Some of you are, yeah, that's me. Well, well, this is communicating, unlike the first slogan, which communicates that work is almost like a god, this one is communicating that work is like an enemy, right? Just gets in the way of true enjoyment and true leisure and, and things that really make life worth living. And, and some of you know what this kind of means, don't you? I mean, this is you, okay? Come on, just be honest. This is you. I'd rather be having coffee with friends, or I'd rather be doing family stuff, be at the beach. I'd rather be playing soccer. That's me. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be golf or whatever. And, and come kind of Sunday evening, you're like this. Oh, no. i got to work tomorrow. Oh, it's Monday. And then, and then come Friday late afternoon, you're like, yes, life starts again because the weekend is about to start. I'd rather be fishing. Here's the third one. This is my favorite. I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. <laughs> and this communicates that work is a necessary evil, right? It's like I've got this mortgage, I've got this big home, I've got to pay it off, so I guess I better work. Or I want to put my kids through school, and I want them to have a good education, so it's private school, which means what? High fees, so I guess I've got to work to pay for them to go through school, or I want that overseas holiday, and that's going to be expensive, so I've got to work, etc., etc. I want that vehicle. I want that piece of clothing. I want to live this kind of lifestyle. And so work is seen as a necessary evil, kind of an annoying stepping stone to pay off debt or accumulate goods. So these slogans, they're telling. Who would agree? And I think they're quite rife. They're quite common in our culture. But here's the thing. Even though these slogans, they 
tell us different things about work, how we view work at times, they all have something in common, and it's this. They all communicate fragmented, fractured, distorted views of work. That's what they have in common. So, so work is like a god. Work is like an enemy. Work, work is just annoying. It just gets in the way, and it's a necessary evil. And what we need to see and realize that these views about work are not unique to our culture. They're not unique to us. In fact, down through the ages, many cultures have viewed work to be an evil thing, a negative thing, a demeaning thing, even an inhumane thing. And so, for example, an ancient Greek myth, Pandora's box. Who's ever heard of Pandora's box? Yeah, you've heard of the term maybe, but do you know the myth attached to it? Yeah? Oh, you do. You come and preach to me? Come on, come on. No, I'm not joking. <laughs> the myth goes as follows. It's quite amusing, but it's quite insightful. Zeus, one of the chief gods, he sends Pandora down to earth. And he sends her down with this beautiful box, and it's so artistically designed. And yet on the box is a huge padlock. And Zeus warns Pandora, whatever you do, Pandora, don't open the box. And so she comes down and she does quite well for a time, but then curiosity just kind of kills her and gets the better of her, and she kind of secretly smashes the box open and open, uh, opens the lid, and then out flies from Pandora's box everything evil, everything that's going to make the world a bad, negative, cruel place. And so out flies envy. And out flies sickness, and out flies disease, and out flies pride and arrogance. And guess what else flies out of Pandora's box? Work. Work. Work flies out because the ancient Greeks viewed work to be a curse. They viewed it to be something that imprisoned the soul. In fact, the, the, the famous uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle, he said that if you really want a meaningful existence, then you gain that through unemployment. <laughs> That's what he said. And by unemployment, he meant not doing nitty-gritty, menial, labor-intensive labor work, blue-collar stuff. That, that, that's how they viewed work, to be quite negative. In addition to this, this is where, you know, where I kind of want to latch onto this, because this is, I think, a real key idea, and it's borrowed from the ancient Greeks. They also had a hierarchical view of work, that is, they didn't view all work as being equal. So to use our terminology, they valued more white-collar professions, and they despised with a passion blue-collar professions. And by the way, there is such a thing as a, a pink-collar work now. Did you, did you know about that? Pink-collar work, and so if you work at Macca's, you're a pink-collar worker. Or Nando's, sorry, Phil. You're a pink-collar, or if you work at Hoyt Cinema or something like that, you're a pink-collar worker. And the Greeks despised work like that, blue-collar, pink-collar. They valued more white-collar professions, work that involved the brain, the mind. In fact, Aristotle, and I know I'm picking on him a little bit this morning, but he's not here, so it's okay, all right? <laughs> he went as far as to say that some people were meant to be slaves, born to be slaves. Why? Because they just didn't have the nous. They didn't have the ability, the, the intellectual capacity to be brilliant. And so they shouldn't aspire to be brilliant. And so they, they should just settle, according to Aristotle, to do these things, 
these menial tasks to free up the brilliant, namely himself and his cronies, to do true life according to them, to, 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 to think about the world and to philosophize and theorize about the universe. That's what they thought. That's what they considered. Now, a lot of people, I think, in our modern age, in our culture, are kind of horrified with such a view, and, and rightly so. Although, who's the, here's the thing. Although we don't buy into literal slavery, the, the attitudes behind Aristotle's worldview are still alive and well in our culture. And this is what I kind of want to hone in on and latch on to. As one writer, Lee Hardy, he's a Christian thinker, he's a Christian philosopher. He says this in his book. He argues very kind of powerfully in his book, The Fabric of This World. He says, quote, penetrating words. He says, Greek attitudes towards work, that is, work is a necessary evil, work is not equal. And its place in human life were largely preserved in both the thought and the practice of the Christian church through the centuries and still, that's us, by the way, we're not off the hook here, and still holds a great deal of influence today in our culture, unquote. Now, these Greek attitudes, ancient Greek attitudes, have come down to us as a set of pervasive ideas. And I want to highlight just one, and it's this. Many believe that lower status, lower paying work is degrading. Meaning that some work is less desirable and therefore less honorable. Tim Keller says on this, and you can't have a good sermon without a Tim Keller quote, so here it is. One result of this belief, lowest status, lowest paying jobs, work is degrading. One result of this belief, now listen to this, is that many people take jobs that they're not really suited for at all, choosing to aim for careers that do not fit their gifts, but promise higher wages and prestige. Oh, that was, a, that was interesting. Well, just that feedback there. Oh, someone's clapping. Oh, there we are. Throw money. <clears throat> All right. He goes on to say, challenging. He says, Western societies are increasingly divided between the highly remunerated knowledge classes, white collar, and the more poorly remunerated service sector, blue collar, pink collar. And most of us accept and perpetuate the value judgments that attach to these categories. You see, in essence, this is what he's saying. Are you tracking? This is what he's saying. He's saying it's so easy for us to fall into this class snobbery trap where we don't really honestly believe in our heart of hearts that all work is equal. All good work is equally good that all respectable work has equal respectability, that all good work is equally worthwhile and equally displays and radiates the image of God. And so it's really easy for us to fall into this class snobbery trap. And yet when we come to Scripture, there is no class snobbery. There is none. And, and, and which means that sometimes we as Christians even can be shaped and governed and influenced by culture, not Scripture. And that's not a wise thing to happen, all right? That's not a wise thing to do. When we come to the Bible, what do we see? What do we see God doing? What types of work does God do and get involved in? Well, after creating the world, we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that he what? He planted a garden in Eden. Now, what does that communicate? God is a landscaper. He's a greenskeeper. 
He's got his hands dirty, messy, planting trees and flowers and manure and the like. That's a blue-collar job. And yet God is doing it. God's doing it. And then you trace the biblical story. And what else do you find God doing? He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. I mean, shepherds were despised by some. They were ostracized. You know, you're a shepherd. You smell like the sheep. And so just move away from me, all right? No, just keep going. Keep going. Further still, keep going. All right? Out of sight, out of smell, all right? That's, what, that's how they were viewed. And yet God says, I'm going to be the shepherd of my people Israel. He associates himself with that blue-collar, smelly occupation. And he's okay with that. And by the way, he says, oh, when my son comes, the Messiah of the world, who's going to die on the cross and rescue people from the idolatry of class snobbery, he's going to be the shepherd. He's going to be the chief shepherd of the sheep. And then Messiah comes. The fullness of time, he comes. And how did he come? Well, he didn't come as a Greek, an ancient Greek. He's not a philosopher or a king. He doesn't come as a Roman. He doesn't come as a military leader or a Caesar. But this is how he came. He came with a chisel in his hand and a hammer. He was a chippy for crying out loud. A chippy for all his working life, 30 years. He was a carpenter in the family business. And you know, Joseph and Mary, they were poor. They were poor. Being a carpenter wasn't you know, a highfalutin job. It's like, hey, I want to make it in life. Okay, well, do carpentry, carpentry right? be a chippy. Uh, we know that they were poor because according to the Leviticus ceremonial law, that if you wanted to make a sacrifice when your child was born, if you were poor and couldn't afford to bring a lamb, then you could bring a pigeon. A pigeon. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph did when Jesus was born. In the eighth day, they offered up to the Lord pigeons. They were poor. Jesus was a blue-collar, hammer-swinging worker. That's what he did. So, obviously, this should communicate something to us about the equality of work, that all work, all good work is equally good, that all respectable work has equal respectability, and we must avoid, like the plague, this class snobbery, because it's not scriptural. Oh, yes, it's cultural, but it's not in the Bible. All right? All good work is equally good. Now, listen, listen. Can you see the radical implications of this? Can you begin to discern the implications of this reality, that all respectable work has equal respectability? Allow me to share with you three. There are more, but just I'm going to hone in on three. And by the way, if these implications kind of prompt questions, that's fine. Just jot them down and maybe send them to Hillary and myself or Charles. Where's Charles? Send them to him. And, and we'll, <laughs> I'm joking. And, and we will... We will aim to answer your questions uh, at a later stage in this series, okay? So three implications. Here we go. Number one, because all good work is equally good, that means that there's therefore no such thing as a sacred and secular divide when it comes to work. Let me say that again. No sacred or secular divide when it comes to work. Now, what do I mean? Well, allow me to give you this test. I call it the Kurong test, the Kurong test, the Christian bookstore, right? Kurong. So there you are. You're on your way to Kurong, and you want to buy yourself a new Christian book, not a CD, a book. And you move into Kurong, doors open, and there before you is the bookshelf, and they're listed the top 10 best-selling books, 1 through 10. And number one is a book with the title, 
the man God uses, or the woman God really uses. And of course, because it's got a catchy title, and it's number one, it must be good, and so you're drawn to it, and you pick it up, and you open it because you're curious. Now, here's the question, here's the test. What are you thinking that book is going to be about? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? The man God uses, really uses, the woman God uses. Now, a lot of Christians would answer and say, well, I think the book is going to be about some overseas missionary. They're going to have sold everything, and they risked their life for Jesus, and they put their life on the line, and they just, they've left their employment, their secular job, and they, you know, they're doing something for God. It's church-related, or it's overseas somewhere. Am I correct? Some of you are like saying, no. Well, that's great. But others are like, yeah, I think I, I'll, I'll, I'll think that. I'm thinking that about a book title, the, the man or the woman God uses. Now, here's the thing. That's the trap. That's the trap of thinking that if you really, really want to be used by God, if you really, really want to live a meaningful life as a Christian, that you have to leave your job and do something like that church-related or be an overseas missionary. And I'm not dissing that, by the way. Those things are awesome. And if God calls you to do that, you do those things. But we need to see that in Scripture, again, because all good work is equally good, there isn't this sacred-secular divide. For example, in John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Now, how does he do that? Well, normally through the preaching of the gospel spiritual things, right? And that's, I guess, what my job is as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a preacher, is to preach the gospel. And through that, the, the Holy Spirit will convict people of their sin. And they'll be brought home to Jesus. And so I guess you could say that that's sacred work. But equally, in Psalm 104 verse 30, we're told that the Holy Spirit is a gardener. We're told that he waters the earth. And that shouldn't surprise us because he created the thing. And so in the mind of the Holy Spirit, sacred work, preaching the gospel, as we would call it, sacred, and secular work, as we would call it, just being a gardener, in the mind of the Holy Spirit, they're one and the same. They're both ministry. They're ministry. You see, we've got to stop using ministry to mean church-related work. Because what is ministry? What is the definition of ministry? It's doing what God has called you to do with his strength for human flourishing. That's what ministry is. That's ministry. And so you can be, listen, this is the implication of that. You can do church stuff and it's not really ministry because it might not be for God. Whew. You see? So let's get rid of this unhealthy division and distinction. All good work is equally good, so let's just can and bin this sacred-secular divide. Implication number two, and this is, I'm a bit nervous about this one, all right, so pray for me. Here it is. Since all good work is equally good and equally displays the image of God, we have the freedom, therefore, to, work, to do work that suits our gifts and skills and passions. Mm. What I'm trying to communicate here by this implication is that we don't have to be pressed into the culture's mold of just aspiring to do jobs that are white-collar, well-paying, and they carry with 
those jobs some social standing, hmm? prestige, but that we are actually liberated to do the very thing or things that God has wired us to do and given us, given us the passion to do. Can you see? And now some of you are thinking, this is, this is awesome. You know, I, I don't have to do the work that I'm in. I'm, gonna, I'm not really liking it anyway. Or, or I don't have to follow through with my university degree because I, I just hate it anyway. I've kind of been pressured by the culture and others just to do it anyway. Look, listen to me. Listen to me, all right? Some pastoral wisdom coming in here. A knee-jerk reaction is never a wise course of action. Right? So, so if you're in a degree and you're like, I hate this, or if you're at a job and you're like, I hate this, and I'm not meant to be doing this. I was kind of forced to do it, pressured to do it. My own internal fears, got to make a living, got to be a someone. Look, listen, stick at it. Stick at it. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. Surrender it to God. And also gather around you people who have your interests at heart. They will, they will, they will tell you what you probably don't want to hear, but that's a good friend. Right? They'll throw spanners into the works and say, come on, is this really God or is this just you? But after all that, praying, seeking counsel, you still feel the tug of God to do something else, to, to, to do a work, and that might be being an overseas missionary or might just, you know, taking a pay cut and doing a blue-collar job or something because you, you feel that God's wired you and given you the passion to do it, then here's my encouragement to you, do it. Do it. Amen. Awesome. No stones. Okay. Look, let's talk about parents for a minute. All right? I'm a parent. And what do I want for my little girls? I want them to be happy. I want them to be successful. I do. I want them to be fruitful. I want them to make the most of their lives. And what's going to bring that about? When they do the thing or the things God has called them to do, that. It's going to make them more satisfied. So I don't think it would be very nice of me or wise of me to try and force them to do something they don't want to do. I'm kind of experiencing this at the moment with their sport and their activities. I, as you know, am a mad soccer fan and soccer player, and I've always wanted a kid that follows in my footsteps. But I've got three girls. Three girls. <laughs> it's God's sense of humor, right? And I'd love for them to put down their ballet shoes and pick up their soccer boots but they don't want to do that. Kaylee's into tap dancing. Annabelle's into doing the splits and gymnastics and roly-polies. They haven't got any interest in soccer whatsoever. I'm counting on Maddie. I'm really counting on Maddie. Like, <laughs> I tell you what, she's so feisty. I think she might end up being a UFC wrestler or something. She's just... But I want to be a good parent. I want to nurture them. And of course, I want them to aim high. I want them to have a good educa education. I'm paying for it. Right? And I, I want them to, to succeed. But, but when all is said and done, if they come to me and say, Dad, I, I, I want to be an overseas missionary. I want to risk it all for Christ. Or I, I want to I take a pay cut because I really believe that God's calling me to do this. I'm going to hands off. I'm going to say, you go, you go get it, girl. You do it. With all your God-given passion and skill, you do it. You do it for Christ. Amen? And so this, I think, parents, I think this is the wise course of action. And I've tried to be sensitive. And I've tried to be sensitive. And I know it's a bit challenging, but come on. Let's not give in again to culture. Culture, culture. 
This is what it means to be someone. You've got to have this kind of job with this kind of pay. No, no, no. Let's be guided and governed by Scripture. Last implication. I love this one. Very practical. Since all good work is equally good, we should be the most appreciative of people's work. As Christians, because we know this, we believe this, we should be the most grateful, the most thankful. You know, Martin Luther, he knew this really well, the the church father, the reformer. He said that the simple cowgirl milking the cows in the farm was one of the fingers of God. That's what he said. And what he meant by that is that God is expressing his care for his creation, his love for his creation through that means, just milking a cow. And we've got to see all work, all good work, as God's expression of love, expression of care. You know, Hill and I, we got chatting to some neighbors the other day, and they told us about their work. And do you know what they do? It's amazing. They work in a laundry kind of factory organization which operates out of Parramatta Prison. News to me. And, and what happens is they, they have sent to them all the laundry and linen from the hospitals in Sydney. They all get dispatched and sent there. And they clean them. They clean them as a part of their work. And I thought, that's amazing. And, and I actually said, we said, that's, that's good work. That's really good work because, hey, look, listen, one day we'll all be in hospital. And I'm pretty damn sure that we want clean linen. We don't want a dirty bed, wee stains and the like. Right? We want them to be clean. And they're doing that. They're doing that. And so in all honesty, we just said, ah, that's a brilliant work. That's so good. It's good. And I think they were taken back by that. You see, this is one of the ways that we can radiate the life and the love of Jesus by just appreciating people's work. I'll close with this story. This is close to home. (laughs) The middle of last year, I think it was May, I was sitting here when we had evening church, and I had my phone switched off because I'm a good Christian. (laughs) And Sarah, she had her phone switched on, (laughs) pretending to take sermon notes or something like that. <laughs> she was taking sermon notes. She's very studious. And I was, I was sitting here, and she looked at me, and she had big eyes, and then she handed me her phone, and I read the text from Natalie. So it does pay to have your phone on sometimes at church. And the, the text read, come home immediately, there's a flood. Natalie. So I thought, so I quickly left. I think Hillary was preaching. I ducked out. I was driving home, and all these images, you know, churning in my mind. I'm going to arrive home, and it's not going to have a roof anymore. You know, it's going to be flooded. And when I got home, the roof was still on. I was like, oh, praise God. Graham was there, my father-in-law. Thank you, Graham. And he was sweeping out the garage and also the kitchen. What happened? There'd been a flood, obviously, in the the sewerage, and all the the sewer water had gushed up into our kitchen. Oh, no. Stinky, stinky stuff. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like, seriously? Well, I phoned my plumber friend. Thank you, Jesus, for my plumber friend. And I gave him a call, and he said, don't worry, Lou, I'll be there first thing in the morning. And he came, and he fixed the job. Now, how cool was that? I mean, just thank you, Lord, for blue-collar workers, plumbers, sparkies, even hairdressers, for crying out loud, right? Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. Because if it wasn't for blue-collar workers, well, I'd probably be dead. You know, I'd be kind of contract some disease because of the sewerage water in my place. But I'm here. I'm alive. See, it's God's expression, His care, His love, His grace flowing through these means, through all these work. And so we ought to be appreciative. We should thank people and be filled with gratitude for all types of work. Can I hear and amen. All work, listen, all good work contains the dignity of work given by God. That no task is too menial for God's image to be seen in. And that's the reality. So come on, no more class snobbery. Let's be a thankful people. No more sacred secular divide. The dignity of work, all good work is equally good. Praise be to Christ's name. Let's stand. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, for work. Thank you for jobs. Thank you, Lord God. That you place work in the garden, and work has been affected because of sin, but redeemed in Jesus. And now we can work with full hearts, not empty hearts, not trying to gain from our work what only Christ can give. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would bless your people as they go to their work, whether it be white collar, pink collar, blue collar, any other color. Lord God, I pray that they would go with a filled, full heart, full of Christ, and that they would do good work. They would do good work that will display and express your care and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless your church. Have a great morning.